Well, thank you, everyone. And um, hey, um, Troy's dad. Are, can you take? Can you remove your mask a little bit? Okay. Can you show the audience, the people? If you remember the photos from Trunk or Treat, there was a, a dad and son with a mustache. That's them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's right. Hey, what a joy it is. I love baby dedications. I love the sound of uh, children and um, the laughter and the, and the cries. And uh, how fun was that? Hey, um, would you turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5? Hebrews chapter 5 will be in, in uh, verses 11 to chapter 6, verse 12. And we've been in the book of Hebrews, a sermon series called uh, Jesus is Greater. And we're taking the book paragraph at a time and covering it, uh, trying to communicate what we believe is a central proposition or the big idea or, uh, of each section. And there's a lot of thick theology here. And in chapter Five, verses 9 and 10, uh, it was towards the end of last week's sermon that we didn't um, quite get into it, but this is how these two verses ended. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek, and what is it that the author of Hebrews is trying to say about him? And it sounds like he's going to continue to talk about Melchizedek, but he doesn't. And in fact, he takes a little bit of a tangent, and he talks about why he is pausing in talking about Melchizedek and how that makes Jesus greater. And our passage for today is the tangent. And then after this passage, next week, he'll go back to talk about Melchizedek and how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And what he'll say in our passage today is this, the reason I cannot talk in depth about Melchizedek and how Jesus is greater is because uh, in chapter 5, verse 11, you're dull of hearing, or uh, the Greek word is sluggish, that's how sometimes it's translated, and at, the, uh, at chapter 6, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, it's the same word. The reason I can't talk about it in depth is because you're sluggish, then don't be sluggish. So the tangent here that we're going to talk about is uh, uh, the author's attempt to communicate to his readers that one of the things that you are struggling with, one of the things that I'm trying to address is your spiritual uh, sluggishness, your immaturity. And then he's going to talk about uh, maturity that we're going to try to head toward. Okay? So we're going to look at it um, uh, from immaturity to maturity. So let's look at from immaturity, uh, chapter 5, verse 11 through 14 first. Um, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, I, I want to say at the outset, uh, for this particular message, you're going to have to pay attention. 
um, it, it's a message that, that we're going to kind of go deep in into the Bible. And so I want you to keep up with me. But he begins by saying, the reason why I cannot talk about in, uh, Melchizedek and, and the deep things of, of who Jesus is, is because you're immature. And here are the three marks of immaturity. He talks about three reasons why he believes that his audience is immature. Number one, it's because they're uninterested in knowing the word of God. They're uninterested in knowing the word of God. He already said in chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And he says here um, that you have become dull of hearing. Now, one of the markers of spiritual maturity is an interest, a natural appetite for the word of God. And on the flip side, one of the markers of spiritual immaturity is that you're bored. You don't care about the things of God. We are more interested in being entertained or being emotionally moved rather than the simplicity of God's word that paints uh, his beauty and also warns us of our depravity. It doesn't mean that people will not flock to hear uh, great orators. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 talks about the end days and what the church will look like. And see if this sounds like a description of the church in America. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. People will flock to churches so that they, their ears will be tickled, so that they will be entertained, they will be emotionally moved. And, uh, and I am not here to say just because the church is big that they're not teaching sound doctrine, nor am I saying that just because the church is small and the preacher is boring that he's, or he or she is doing a good job of teaching. But what we are uh, saying is this, that one of the marks of spiritual immaturity is a disinterest in the word of God. They, they're dull of hearing it, and rather, we would be um, interested in just being entertained. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a series of questions to see if this describes you. Do you still have a natural interest in spiritual truth? Or does it simply bore you? Do you care about biblical truth? Do you care about the Bible and learning from it? Or does it bore you. The second mark of spiritual immaturity is that they're unable to teach the Word of God. They're unable to teach the Word of God. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but uh, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracle of God. You should be at a stage in your spiritual um, life in which you ought to be teaching others. That you ought to be able to teach our children's ministry. That you ought to be mentoring our youth. That you ought to be facilitating small groups. But rather, you are still at a stage where you're sitting down and saying, feed me, feed me. Let me ask you a question. If a confused young junior high girl asks you, 
I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm good enough to be accepted by my parents. I don't know if I'm good enough to be loved by God and to go to heaven. I don't know if I'm good enough to go to heaven. How would you respond? You ought to be, for so many of you who've been Christians a long time, you ought to be at a point where you can answer her, not with simply an Oprah-like answer in which you uh, say to her and you try to make her feel better. No, but you're beautiful, honey. You're good enough. Uh, uh, as if you were a positive thinker and, and if you can somehow just get her to think that way. Uh, or you... you you are a, a, a motivational speaker. You can do better. I believe in you. Do you understand the gospel enough? Do you understand the Bible enough to explain to her that her self-worth is not dependent on her performance on this earth? But her, self, her worth is based upon the work that was already done for her at the cross. You believe it and it applies to her and so you can communicate the gospel to her. And if she asks, that sounds too good to be true. Is that really in the Bible? Can you show me where? And do you get stumped then? Um, the author of Hebrews is saying, you should be at a point where you should be teaching others. But you're still sitting down and saying, feed me, feed me. I'm not ready. The third marker of spiritual immaturity, not only are they uninterested in knowing God, the Word of God, not only are they unable to teach the Word of God, but they're unskilled in handling the Word of God. He says that they need milk, not solid food. They are unskilled in the Word of righteousness since he is a child. And this is a description of a child. In terms of eating, the, one of the differences between a baby and an adult is this. And there are many differences, but one of the basic differences is this. A baby doesn't have teeth, right? And so they cannot eat solid food. They cannot chew solid food. And an adult can. And so uh, you cannot give a, a piece of chicken to a, a, a child without teeth uh, because they can't chew it. An adult is uh, expected to be able to uh, eat that. I, I remember a um, long time in Korea when I was in Korea, um, and this may sound, I don't know. I don't know if it sounds weird to you. I don't think it's that weird. But grandmas and moms, um, because they didn't have blend, blenders or, you know, like an ability to puree food, um, grandmas used to pre-chew food. Do you guys, some of you remember that? It's a piece of chicken you don't know, put it in a spoon and feed it to that child, right? I, I, I don't know, why, it, it's not gross, I don't think. Um, and that's how you feed solids to babies. Now, this is what the author is saying. You ought to be at a stage in your life that you should be able to take the word of God, handle it for yourself, chew on it, di dissect it, understand it so that you're able to then apply it into your life situation and your circumstances. You shouldn't have to have it parade, pureed and given to you on a spoon as if you were a baby. Now, let me ask you this question. 
Are you able to face difficult, complex uh, so, you know, issues and apply the word of God to those issues without having someone spoon-feed purees to you? Are you able to take issues like um, uh, the unborn baby, racism, politics, and apply biblical truth uh, from the Word of God that you digested? And if you can't, if, you, if someone has to tell you, or if you just blindly receive what some Christian blogger says to you, or what someone tweeted, and you cannot um, examine that um, from the Word of God, then you're, you've become immature. The author is saying, I'm, I wanted to tell you this deep thing of how Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but I'm going to take a tangent here. I'm going to pause and talk a little bit about the reason why I can't. And, and one of the reasons is you're not ready. You're immature. I, you don't care. You can't teach or you're unwilling to teach. And you're still wanting pureed food, pre-chewed food. Does that describe you or not? Now, let's go on to chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Uh, to maturity. He's going to talk about three phrases. Let us go on to maturity. It is impossible to restore to repentance. And um, we feel sure of better things. And let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now, he, he has talked about you. Now, he is changing pronouns, verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of God and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, and resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And he says this, and there's a, there are a couple things that we ought to, to pick up on. He says there are these elementary principles, like the ABCs of the Bible. He's not saying that we ought to leave behind the ABCs, but we ought to build on the ABCs. And he's not saying just you, he's saying us. So even the writer, the author who, who knows the heart and mind of God, who uh, is writing the inspired word of God, says, we need to move toward maturity. Uh, the word, by the way, uh, maturity in Greek, teleos, is like perfect, complete. He's not saying he is perfect. Then, in fact, uh, the apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Philippi, says in Philippians 3, 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, the same Greek word, uh, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So the author of Hebrews, as well as Paul the apostle, said the goal is maturity, but I have, we have not arrived. But we need to get there. Now, he's saying that we, don't leave, we can't leave aside the elementary principles, the ABCs of the Bible, but then he says we need to build on it. Now, um, you know, I remember when my girls uh, were growing up, at some point in time, you know, we taught them the ABCs. And, and, you know, it's great when they learn it. But we want them to eventually put those ABCs together to form words, right? So in preschool, they would like bad or car or whatever. 
And, and with those words, um, and we want them to string together those words so that it becomes sentences. And so they, they can say, the car is red. And, and we rejoice in that, but we don't want them to just stay there. We want them to take those sentences and pull them together and form paragraphs. And so in, in school, they would write uh, sentences to form paragraphs. And as they continue to mature, we want them to pull paragraphs together to form chapters or essays. And as they continue to mature, write deep thoughts that can potentially change the world, right? It doesn't mean that they leave behind the ABCs, but it means that we want them to build on the ABCs and to continue to grow and mature. There are two kinds of people that, that then, then the writer of Hebrews is saying. There are those people who are not perfect, but that's where they want to get to. They want to get to maturity. They, they, they know that they need to keep progressing. And there are those people who just know their ABCs and they don't care if they grow anything, anything beyond that. Say, no, don't stay there. Let us move toward maturity. Now, the second, it is impossible to restore to repentance. Now, this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time. Okay? This passage, uh, this particular paragraph is perhaps the most controversial uh, a paragraph in the book and in parts of the, uh, the whole Bible, actually. And um, if you're here out in the patio, or if you're here in this room, or if you're at home listening, I want you to, uh, I, I want you to like, engage with me, with your mind. I, I don't want you to listen dully, but I want you to listen sharply. Okay? And this is important. Um, let me see. We're going to hope this works. Okay, this is the original uh, passage. We're going to read it uh, in the ESV. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them to, again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, um, I'm going to say uh, that this uh, grammatically is a little confusing. Okay, So uh, I'm not going to change the meaning, but I'm going to just shift a couple of sentences around so that it's a little bit more logically clear and being an engineer in the past or being a computer programmer, I, I, I kind of like logic, okay? So uh, let's, oh, I was going to, I have it. All right, so do you see the, the two uh, yellow phrases that uh, uh, I, just, I just moved in? Now, whom is uh, the author talking about? He's talking about this group of people. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. Now, I want you to notice something here. Remember, he started by saying, you are immature. And he said, and then he, uh, so he, he was talking uh, second person, plural. And then he talked, he switched to first person, plural. Let us move toward maturity. And I want you to notice the subtle thing that he does here. He moved on to third person, uh, plural. Now, he's talking about a them now these people. In the case of those, and who are these people? I, I don't know about you, but at, um, just, as, just surface reading, initial reading, someone who's been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly good, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God, 
and the, and the powers of the age to come? Uh, is he talking about Christians or not Christians? What it, initially, what does it sound like? He's talking about Christians. It sounds like he's talking about Christians, right? Okay, so let's just hold that thought here. He's talking about a group of people that we think are Christians. He's not talking about a first-person plural or second-person plural. A group of people who are, who have, who are acting and, and, and reacting like if they were Christian. And then there's this part here, and then fallen away. And then fallen away. Now, uh, some people think that this passage is talking about apostasy. Apostasy, someone who has walked away from the Christian faith. So someone who used to be a Christian and is no longer a Christian. By the way, uh, the Greek word here is not using the word that's, um, that people use as apostasy. It's a unique word, but it, it, it does kind of mean fallen away. So does this mean that we're talking about a Christian who is no longer a Christian? Okay, this is the, the heart of the controversy. Can someone who had eternal life no longer have eternal life? Can someone who was a genuine born-again Christian come to a point and decide that they're no longer a Christian? Okay, now this is an, a hugely important topic, and this is a meat that I want you to, uh, you know, just imagine like you're taking a big sirloin steak and putting it in your mouth and biting into it, not just listening to what the preacher says, not simply uh, listening to what someone tweeted, but really understanding the passage for yourself, right? Now, I'm not going to stop there because oftentimes that's where people just stop. I want you to look at uh, the rest of it. If A is true and B is true, the authors say then C has to be true. If that's the case, it is impossible. And the Greek word impossible doesn't mean difficult or challenging. It means impossible. It was logically impossible. Okay? It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What does it sound like he's saying? It sounds like if someone was a Christian and they walk away from the faith, they cannot be a Christian again. Doesn't it sound like that's what it's saying? On the surface, that's what it sounds like it's saying. Okay? Now, um, I'm going to now um, try to, uh, to, to walk you through this, uh, some of this. Does this mean that a Christian can lose their salvation? Does it mean that, first of all? And that seems to be a, you know, fairly a plain interpretation. Now, I'm going to give you like a, a principle in how do we understand the Word of God. At, when, we, when we encounter the Word of God, there are times, and just about, just about anything in life, um, sometimes they seem to uh, contradict each other or confuse each other, etc. But in, in general, you have to take that which is clear and, and help that um, and allow the clarity to help you understand those things that are unclear. Does that make sense? So I'm driving up Carbon Canyon to come to church. Uh, on Carbon Canyon, when I first go into it, there's this big white speed limit, 40 miles an hour. And so that's the clear. And then as I'm driving, there are these smaller yellow signs, 25 miles an hour as, as it kind of bends. The white big sign is the clear it's like, I, I can never go beyond 40. And then there are other times I need to go slower. But the big thing is I can never go beyond 40. What is the clear 
teachings of Scripture? Does, this te does the Scripture teach that a Christian, a genuine born-again Christian, can actually lose their salvation? Now, let me give you a couple of passages. John chapter 10, verses 37, uh, no, no, 27 and 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Eternal life, he says, is eternal. Once the Father has us in his hand, no one, not even yourself, has the power to snatch you out of my hand. Now, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 uh, through 30, first of all, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is completely in control. And verses 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, the, um, the, the writer of Romans, Paul says, that uh, our, our salvation, our eternal life is predestined, that God is fully in control, and nothing can disturb that plan. So, can a born-again Christian, someone who had eternal life, lose their eternal life? I think the clear passages tell us no. If it, if, if it can end, it's, no, it's not eternal. It was never eternal. It was temporary. It was only transitional. It is eternal if there's nothing that can disturb that. Now, here's a second argument. Um, if, let's say, this is true. Let's say, hypothetically, that you can lose your salvation, then what does this third part mean? It is impossible to restore one to salvation, to, to repentance. Does that mean, and my sermon title is this, that there are people walking around who used to be Christian, who walked away from the faith. Are there people like that walking around? And, if, and, and by the way, there are segments of the, the Christian church that believe that you can actually lose your salvation, okay? And, and, and that's fine. And I can understand how they arrive at that. But they cannot arrive at that uh, by using this passage because this passage says that if it is uh, true that you can walk away from the faith, you can never get it back. That if falling away means that you walk away from salvation, that person can never become a Christian again. Does that make sense? Does, that, is that, does it sound logical? That seems to be what the, the plain reading sounds like. Is that the evidence of Scripture? When we look at Scripture, we have to look at the propositions, the clear propositions that it gives us, and examples. Does it match that? Um, we, were, we were already told that the proposition says salvation is eternal. Are there then examples of those who have uh, sinned so grievously, su such big, big sins, that they've lost their salvation and God says, you can never repent now. You think about it. Abraham was a liar. Peter was a denier. John Mark was a quitter. David was a rapist murderer. Were they restored 
Were they able to repent? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Now, here's an interesting case. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He writes to them, and in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about a person um, who is sleeping. Listen carefully now. This is really from the Bible. Um, I heard from among you there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. What? Say that again? Like there's someone in your church that's sleeping with his, uh, having sex with his father's wife. And, and it's, a, it's a stepmother. And the problem is, you're tolerating it. You th- you're saying it's okay. You need to remove that person from the church. You need to say, no, that's sin. If, if we can think of a case in which someone sins so grievously... Uh, and that they don't feel uh, ashamed that that would be the kind of case that we're talking about. That if someone is fallen away, perhaps it's this person. But it's interesting. When Paul writes again to the same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he writes that that person that you've uh, rebuked, that you need to be able to restore and forgive that person. If, if a man is sleeping with his stepmother and, 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 and he says that that's worse than what non-Christians would do, and if there's hope for that person to be restored, the evidence in Scripture says that there's no unforgivable sin, that there's no one who is irredeemable. Now, so I think the evidence is clear that this is not a case of someone who used to be saved um, and, and fallen away and lost their salvation forever. I don't think that's a tenable explanation. Now, a second explanation is this, that perhaps he's not talking about salvation, but simply a rejection of spiritual truth. That this person was a Christian, they've encountered um, like a truth of God, and they rejected that particular truth, but not salvation truth. And that might have its merit. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 says, For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for, to those who, whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And if you remember the, the parable of the four seeds, perhaps it's a Christian. They sat down on a Sunday morning in the month of November, they were listening to a sermon. That's nice. I don't really care today. It doesn't produce any fruit but thorns and thistles. Maybe that's what the author is talking about. And here's the problem. It's okay if we're just talking about verses uh, 4 and 5, but not if it gets to verse 6. Then if verse 6 implying that for that spiritual truth, that person can never receive it again and repent and be restored. Okay? Here's what I think is um, at least, and I'm not saying all those biblical scholars, many that I respect are wrong. But as an engineer, as a, you know, just kind of a nerd, this is what for me makes the most logical sense. Okay? Um, that perhaps um, what the author is saying this, if A is true, and B is true, then C has to be true. But if C is not true, then perhaps A and B cannot go together. That it is illogical to have A and B together. You cannot have both. 
Maybe A and B are contradictory to each other. That a genuinely saved person with an eternal life cannot walk away from the faith. So let me give you an illustration. So let's say, you know, you're visiting your daughter at boarding school. And um, you found out, as you're visiting her, you're talking to her principal, you find out that, that she's been eating at the, at the cafeteria but hasn't paid for her meals and so she's under discipline. So they don't want to feed her anymore and, and you're just heartbroken. No, no, that can't be the case. And so you make arrangements and, and you know, I'm going to prepay all of her meals and, and such. And um, I'm going to give a huge endowment to the school and um, I'm going to take all of my life savings and I'm going to bet my future on it so that my child can eat, my daughter can eat whatever she wants as she needs. I'm going to pay her debt. I'm going to pay for her meals today. I'm going to pay for all her meals in the future. So you give this big chunk of change. You go and a year later you come back and you say, hey, how's my daughter doing? What? She's not eating at the cafeteria. Why? Because she hasn't paid for her meals. I said, what are you talking about? And, and the headmaster says, well, um, she came back, you know, she, she was eating, and then after a while, she said, I don't want to eat anymore at the cafeteria. I don't like the food. And then a few weeks later, she changed her mind. You wanted to come back, and, and we said, no, you forfeited the right to eat at the cafeteria. As a father, you would make this, or you would say this, yes, my daughter could potentially have these moments when she gets flaky, but um, she has credit, and that's not on her. She didn't earn it or deserve it. I gave to her. The credit comes from what I did, not what she's feeding or doing or saying. If someone was forgiven for their sins, past, present, and future, it's not dependent upon that person, but on the person who paid that price on the cross. That credit can never be taken away. Now, um, so, if a person can never lose their salvation, the, the problem is this. We know of people who used to go to church, who used to be really involved, uh, people that you knew in youth group that like, were so fired up and like, dude, where are they? Right? Because um, it, it sounds like them. Now, J.D. Greer, uh, the, uh, the pastor author, tells this story. He was playing basketball in the gym one time, playing 21. And um, he, he, he was playing with a guy um, who was just tatted out, tattoos all over the body, piercings just all over the place. J.D. Greer started kind of talking to him um, you know, about spiritual things. And, uh, you know, a few sentences in, the guy kind of stopped. Dude, are you trying to witness to me? And um, J.D. Greer, who's a, a Baptist pastor, said, uh, yes. Well, hey, that's pretty awesome. No one's tried to witness to me in a long time. But, dude, you're wasting your time. I grew up in a Baptist church. 
I went to youth camp when I was 13 and asked Jesus to come into my heart. And over the next couple of years, I was a super Christian. I mean it. I went to youth group every week. I did the true love waits commitment to not have sex until I was married. I memorized verses and went on mission trip. I even led other kids to Christ. But about two years after that, I discovered sex. One, one thing led to another. A year or so later, I decided I didn't believe in God anymore. So now I don't go to church. I don't pray. I don't do anything. I do whatever I want. But then he adds, but here's what's awesome. The church grew, I grew up was a Southern Baptist church, and they taught eternal security. That means once saved, always saved. By the way, aren't you a Baptist? He went on. That means that my salvation at the age of 13 still holds, even if I don't believe in God anymore. Now, once saved, always saved, right? That means even if you're right and God exists and Jesus is the only way, I'm safe. So either way, it works out great for me. What do we do about people? Uh, what, how do we explain a situation where someone who accepted Jesus and when they were 13 but can completely deny Jesus as an adult without even blinking an eye? So once saved, always saved. Does that apply to them? Now, let, let me go on to chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Um, now, the author has talked about, hey, we need to move, like, you're immature, we need to move on to immaturity, and there are these groups of people um, that, that hypothetically can walk away from their faith, but, I, but that's impossible. And verses 9 through 12, I think, affirms this thought, because, listen, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, now he's going back to second person plural, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now he's per, he goes to second person plural, you, and he goes from uncertainty to certainty, but this I am sure of, what belongs to salvation, what's tied to salvation. Verses 10 through 12, for God is... Uh, not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and still you do, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's saying, no, no, I want you to keep going, keep going. Now, here's how we explain it. Um, if, uh, if once you're saved, you're always saved, how do we explain people who have walked away from the faith. And this is it. Um, the faith that saves is the faith that endures to the end. True faith, and this is, goes along with how we interpret it, true faith doesn't stop. We can have moments when we doubt. We can have uh, months and perhaps years of rebelling as the, the prodigal son. But true faith doesn't stop. Once the Holy Spirit has a hold of you, he just won't leave. Once a father has us by the hand, he won't let go. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. Hebrews 6.11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And, the, and John, the apostle, says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, how do we explain those people then who seem so saved but are no longer? 
says us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So it's not the, uh, the case of people losing their salvation. It's a, a case of people who were never saved to begin with. They were cultural Christians. They were just playing the part. And so this passage is not a warning to not fall away, but it's actually an encouragement. That the, if the Lord has a hold of you, he will not let go. Going back to the case of the church at Corinth, uh, Paul does something interesting. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Uh, he's saying, yeah, um, it, it's not that you're going to lose your salvation, but are you really a believer to begin with? Now, I'm going to have the band to come up at this time. and You know what? I, we can look at this passage, this, this tangent, uh, this aside conversation, and then, and then the author said, I, I can't talk about Melchizedek. I can't talk about spiritual things because you're, you know, you're acting mature. But listen, um, let's, let's move on to maturity. Um, and, and there's really not a danger of you losing your salvation because that's impossible. Because along with salvation is God holding you. But. We need to, to press on still. And, and the Lord will do their work, his work. I, I want us to understand this is not a warning. but It is a warning, but it is an encouragement to us. It is an encouragement that it is the Lord who has a hold of you. Let, can you bow your heads with me at this moment? Can you come into the presence of the Holy Spirit and perhaps... Now, you also came to know Jesus at the age of 13 in youth group. And perhaps today's the day that you came to church for the first time in many years, or perhaps you're here reluctantly and you're just kind of wondering, is this all there is to it, or do I really believe in all this? And I, I'm going to say to you that, um, that perhaps you were never saved, and if so, that perhaps this is the day that you... You come to uh, the presence of Jesus saying, it's not a kind of what I've done, how good I am, but really of what you've done. Or perhaps you need to come to the point and you acknowledge that, that Lord, I, I've strayed, but I thank you for holding me. I'm grateful again. So Lord, I, I thank you for the men and women in this space. I thank you that right now for the, the, the past 30, 40 minutes, they've listened with their hearts open. That they weren't dull of hearing. That they, they weren't just simply soaking in what I've already um, digested for them, but they were taking the word of God and really digesting it for themselves. And they come um, honestly, openly before you would you, the Holy Spirit, do your convicting work? We thank you for the work that you've already done on the cross, and we receive it and are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray.